quite amusingly, I found out the other day when I was doing some research for um, an Operation Sea Lion game, the Boy Scouts used to be trained in quarterstaff fighting for riot control. Those were the good old days, James. Yeah, it's worth noting that my home guard does have some Boy Scouts attached with quarterstaff. There's nothing like giving teenagers uh, blunt weapons and tell them to go control uh, crowds. Hey, I give them rifles and live ammunition. Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. This week, James Langham joins me from across the pond. James is an avid wargamer and lover of RPGs. He started a YouTube channel a year ago to cover his interests, and he produces an astounding amount of content. We discuss post-apocalyptic military RPGs, which leads, of course, to the upcoming release of Twilight 2000. We discuss World War II and sensitivity in using people from history in our historical games. It's time to put on your camo, shoulder your rifle, and grab an extra pair of socks. We are going deep into the enemy territory. Sisters and brothers, it is time to get ramped. Thank you for joining me. Uh, so what is your gaming history? Um, I'll, I'll keep it fairly short because um, it is a long and involved one. Um, I went to London with my dad. My dad must have been about 12, somewhere around about there and went to a bookshop and they had some of the airfix modeling guides and I, I was into making model kits at that point and they had three in a bargain bin i had a look there was one modeling tanks one modeling armored cars and then a third one called wargaming world war ii and what's this about i picked it up looking at it sounds quite interesting it's gaming using all these models i've got so i picked it up started gaming and about two three years later i found out there was a, a local club um, so I went down, started getting into wargaming, and a good friend of mine, Neil Grant, um, I mean, we've been friends now for nearly 40 years, uh, he started about the same time as me. And then one week, he brought down a game called Tunnels and Troll. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So we had, we had a game of it, and it was, it was mind-blowing. It was, I'm representing everything in one figure. I've not got hundreds of figures. I've just got one to deal with. And it's like all the books that I love. And I think ever since then, I've been uh, hooked on, well, both role-playing and wargaming. Um, I play a lot, well, play very little, if I'm, if I'm 100% honest. I write and uh, read an awful lot more about gaming. Um, it's finding a group sometimes is the, is the difficulty. I've, I've, I mean, I've got a few people I game with occasionally, um, but a lot of it, Unfortunately, at the minute, is wargaming rather than role playing. Yeah, it's it's hard sometimes to, to get that mix right. Sometimes I'm sure is is I'm sure is is, is wargaming very is is it how popular is wargaming in England? Um, it seems to be quite popular around this area. Um, over lockdown, I started pushing my YouTube channel a bit. And guy got in touch with me through the linked website. And went, oh, you're you're fairly local to us. Do you want to come and join us for a game? Uh, and I've then realised that one of the play- one of the other players lives about two streets away. From me. <laughs> you know, e- e- you know, even in British terms, that's close. 
Yes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I'm, most Friday nights, I'm driving about seven miles to get a good game, and there's a good half dozen, dozen, half dozen of us who game there. Uh, I just need to find a role-playing group now. So if there's anybody anywhere near Shirebrook in uh, Derbyshire, please get in touch with me. Yes, please do. We'll try. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's hard. It's hard to, to you know get gamers. I where I moved to, um, I really didn't have. Uh, I moved because of work, and I didn't really have anybody here that was yeah. wanting to play. So I ended up, I had kids that had friends. So I just like hooked them into it and. <laughs> and I had a group of teenagers and uh and had some crazy yeah. crazy times but it's it's not always easy um you know even no. though with the internet it seems like we tend to be still kind of cloistered at times yeah I'm working on the grandkids at the moment I've got them into war gaming next step role play uh that, that sounds like it. so what what sort of role playing games I, so tunnels and trolls was a, a early uh hit with you so so is there a certain area that you, you you delve into deeper or have you pretty much like have you played traveler i mean what are your experiences traveler was probably about the second role-playing game in the classic uh, little black box edition going back that far oh yeah um went, went through a lot of the the gdw games uh often because of twilight 2000 which is probably the, the big role-playing game um, I've got a really soft spot for that. I think because of the background is was so well written. Um, systems in all the editions were playable, so that, that that's that's my big one. That I do a lot of the writing for. Um, I do play a bit of Dungeons and Dragons, um, simply because that's one we pretty much guarantee there'll be somebody who thinks has got an idea of the rules. Um, the Morrow Project is another another golden oldie that I, I quite liked. Um, but I hate to think how many hundreds of role-playing games I've bought over the years. The uh, So for the Moral Project, because that's one that we played a lot of. In fact, uh, I we I had the misjudgment of, of putting the Moral Project like combat rules and character rules on top of Traveler to make it more realistic. <laughs> <laughs> Which it did, but it was, it, you know, yeah. that's, that's a folly of youth there. Um, well, so the Morrow Project was the classic combat system. It just needed a bit of role playing to go with it. Yes, you know, I think there's a lot of role playing games out there that have the premise is amazing. It's just the execution of rules is where things fall apart. Oh, do you use rules? I make it up as I go along <laughs> half the time. That's what we should have done with Morrow Project. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, the, the more project, the more I've looked at, gone back to it, looked at it, the background was phenomenal. Yes. It, it was incredibly well thought out. Yeah, it's, I think one of, if you just want to hook into a very fun setting, that is probably it. I mean, it has a lot of possibility and it's very interesting. And the premise is normal schmoes like uh, can, can change the world. You know, it could be a dentist, it, it you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, quite, I quite liked it. Uh, and it's interesting, both Neil, who introduced me to Tunnels and Trolls, and myself have both set up at varying points uh, a version of the Morrow Project based around the UK. 
which is quite interesting because the UK would probably be something one team would cover. Yeah, that is interesting. I, you know, it's except for I think, I think other than Twilight uh, 2000, I think almost every post apocalyptic game, you know, was very, uh, you know, United States centric. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of. I think more more star aren't, aren't they? I think. No, so, there's nothing jumping out for me. So UK what do you do? Did you normally just take that information when you'd run those types of games and play them in the UK and just create your own scenarios, or would you actually run those types of games in the US? The problem I find with playing in the US is the difficulty in in knowing the background well enough. It's, I suppose it for me, it would be the, the geography side of it. It would be very similar, I suppose, perhaps to an American coming across and going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to role play based in the walls of the roses. Yes. And it would be the same yeah. level of, of, of not understanding. Uh, I have played a few scenarios in, in the US. Um, interestingly, most of what I've run in Twilight 2000 has actually been in Poland uh, or the Middle right. East. Right. Uh, I, I find those are better settings, although the UK does work brilliantly as a setting. I do have to admit. But well, in America, I've never gelled for some reason to, to set it there. Well, I think you know, when you look at Europe, there's a lot of different countries and cultures packed into a small area, which I think can lead yeah. to much more interesting situations. And I think, in general, you know, uh, not counting the the post-election this year, I think uh, the U.S. is we're fairly united in a way culturally, but like even probably with all of England, you have probably different groups that really wouldn't mind just splitting away if it came down to the loss of a central government. Yeah, I mean, the, sort of the, the various sort of independence movements in the U.K. Um, are quite interesting because there is Yes, the feeling that people want to be separate, but I think there is a unity as well, which I think is very hard to describe to an outsider. Um, being Welsh myself, rather than English, um, I, 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 I always describe myself as Welsh first and British second. Yeah. And I think the, the Celtic sort of fringes all tend to do that. Um, but most people in, those, in the areas are happy with the central government as long as it's representing When they feel it doesn't, that's when it would fall apart. And Twilight 2000 gives obviously the ideal setting for that. Yeah, because like Ireland, I would imagine, probably could very well easily, especially being in a separate island, uh, could easily just say, you know what, we're, we're done with this. We're our own people now, or our own uh, country. Ironically, I think Ireland is the least likely. Mainly because of the historical issues between North and South, uh, which is a, a massive topic to, to discuss. Uh, the, the Protestants in the North are very happy being within the UK uh, because they see it as, as a guarantee of independence from the South. Um, of all the, the, the areas, Scotland, I think, is probably the one that is the most likely to separate, um, which does explain why some of my old 20 mil stuff actually had Scottish flags and things on it. The 
the Royal Army of Scotland. Uh, that got okay. uh, always quite useful in gaming terms because it gives it gives you a force to split your British into two halves and have a civil war. They're still using the same kit. Right. So, uh, so I never really did have my my friend did have Twilight Two Thousand, but we did not play it. I mean, looking yeah. looking backwards at the you know grabbing some books and then looking at the rules. I mean, it definitely is pretty dated in, in both the scenarios, the way they're handled, I think, and also the rules themselves. You have to remember it's a game of its time. Um, I mean, the first edition, the Cold War hadn't ended when it was written. Right. Um, Germany was still divided. You know, it's, it's very interesting to look back at it almost as a historical artifact in some ways. Um, it's a very plausible alternative history. Um, Rules-wise, I think it's the first edition was definitely of its time. The second edition moved to more modern, and obviously now we've got the uh, the fourth edition coming. Right. Uh, I won't comment on, on Twilight twenty thirteen as I never bought it at the time. I have picked it up since, but I've, I've never played it, so I don't think it would be fair to comment on that one. Yeah. By the scenarios, I mean, it seemed like they were very combat uh, heavy and kind of were set up, at least some of the ones I was flipping through. It just seems like there's a kind of a more of a bend towards combat than actually, you know, solving other types of issues. Yeah, to a, de- to a degree, but I'm, it's difficult when your role playing is set in the middle of a war. There will be a lot of, a lot of shooting. Oh, that is it's, true. It's, it's, it is interesting that some of the best scenarios I play never actually involve much fighting. Um, spending a lot of time in Krakow, um, which is a free city, going you know sort of the Nazdrowy Bar, or Nazdrowia Bar, sorry. Um, we used to pronounce it wrong back then. It's at least in some more Polish people. I've how bad the pronunciation yeah. was. Um, <laughs> we used to we used to spend a lot of seconds there, and. Very few firefights. Um, it was a much more intrigue-based one. You could run it now. Yeah, and I think in, in general, if I recall correctly, it was a pretty lethal system, so that in and of itself should probably lead players to not resort to violence first if they don't have to. I'm a cynic and said it wasn't actually violent enough, particularly in ah. the second edition. Um, it didn't have the one-hit kill. I think any system involving firearms must have provision, no matter how small, but you're hit, you're dead. And that is a brilliant way to stop players firing unless they have to. Yeah, because we've just been playing Delta Green, and that has uh, that kill rule, which is, it is kind of, even though it hasn't necessarily been used against us, but I could see where against other characters, it would be, if it was used against us, it would, Right, it causes you to pause to think. Yeah, and, and you need that. Firearms should be a last resort. Well, and I think the, the problem with the damage, you know, when we talk about hit points and then we deal with damage, it's like you say, it, it seems I, because you can have a small caliber weapon kill a person, but you can also have a person that's been shot many, many times with higher caliber weapons and still 
walk away, maybe not walk away, but they, they actually survive it with, with, without having, you know, too severe of injuries. It's, it's, it's hard to kind of model, I think, that whole thing, you know, realistically. Yeah, I mean, critical hit systems work nicely for that, where you do get long-term damage. Uh, although my favorite, I remember back in Games Day, back, I think it was 1986, they just brought out a game called Phoenix Command. Um, and the small arm system of that was designed to be modeled incredibly realistically. And I, I was walking past the table and watching, and one player was hit by an RPG-7. And the GM said, roll, roll percentage dice. What, what am I rolling for? Is there much damage I take? No, that's how many pieces your character is now in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I've, I've heard that game is very, 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 very complicated as far as the mechanics um, go. You can reckon on spending an hour to cope with five seconds of combat. So, like, for instance, you enjoy playing miniatures combat uh, with miniatures. You enjoy RPGs. So does that make you more likely to play uh, in games or more willing to play in games that combat could take a long period of time, like maybe maybe a, a half hour's worth of role-playing, but maybe an hour and a half, two hours' worth of, of simulated combat? No, I'd actually rather it the other way around. I think okay. the problem I find with most role playing is the combat is way too slow to resolve. Um, my my holy grail is to find a set of wargaming rules that you can play in real time. Uh, I think we've, I think I've got the closest I've ever got at the minute with Seven Days to the River Rhine, which is a I'm using to get about Twilight Two Thousand actually when it goes above a certain level. Um, the small arms combat. I think needs to be fast so the characters get the feel for it. You don't spend 30, 30 minutes thinking, right, am I going to get up and move from that bit of cover to that bit of cover? If I do, what's the modifier? It should just it should be very quick uh, action. And I have played it where the players have had five seconds to tell me what they're doing. If they don't say it, that's it. On to the next player. Yeah. We, we've all had that person at the, at the table that will not make a decision <laughs> so you do have yeah. to enforce that sometimes yeah the thing is the, fa- the faster you make it like that the more realistic it gets because people make mistakes which is what happens in real life yeah it's, it's kind of interesting because even watching real life conflicts you can have a number of people with pistols in relatively short range behind a tree and maybe a couple people behind a car and lots of bullets going on, but nobody getting hit for a long period of time. Um, but other times, you know, it can go very quickly where just once somebody gets hit, it's over. Yeah. I mean, I always say, look at newspaper headlines. You, you, you see headlines like in a two hour firefight with police, two people were, were injured. Right. Role playing, we try and wargaming, we condense it down to that few seconds. And I, I would rather it took longer in real time to play, but it took it took that length of time. So you have the pauses where everyone looks around, assesses what the, what's going on. They take time to reload when they've actually only fired ten rounds from the magazine, because they can top up that way. It, it, it it's a more realistic feeling. I suppose that's with 20, you know, 29 years in Army Cadet Force. You, it's ingrained the sort of things you should be doing. 
and you never see it in films. No. No. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, you know, I think there is always a potential for heightening the suspense of fights. And maybe where a person knows they only have, I mean, they do do that sometimes with like limited ammunition, but, but it, it, it would be kind of interesting to have some of that in, in some movies to heighten the situation, trying to decide whether you, whether you should take the time to uh, top off or you should take the time to run behind a barrel or whether you should, uh, you know, we have multiple decisions and you have to make a quick one. One of the most interesting experiments I ever tried uh, was a small firefight players and I t and I didn't let them keep track of their own ammunition. I kept track of it for them. And it got the paranoia going, the players going, how many shots did I fire? I'd better reload. <laughs> well, it was so realistic. Yeah, because I think in real life there's no counter and you're all that adrenaline's just flooding through your body. You know, you're not able to just yeah. say, oh, okay, I shot three times. That means I've got, you know, eight minus three, five. Yeah. I mean, you're probably trying to keep One count. Of the yeah. But you you'll, just, you'll, you just... you'll often see it in accounts where what they'll do is put a few tracer rounds at the bottom of the magazine. So when they start firing tracer, they change magazine. Ah. That's smart. Uh, yeah, it, if your life depends on it, you should get smart very quickly. Yes. So, uh, so it sounds like Twilight Two Thousand is is pretty much is that your if if you had one one game that you could play or that's your going to be your your game for, you know for long term. So I'm, is Twilight Two Thousand the game that you would choose? I think it would be that there are a lot of good contenders. Um, I mean, I still have a soft spot for tunnels and trolls. It, it's a lousy system for combat, but it was fun and it was fast. Um, Call of Cthulhu definitely got to be up there as well. Uh, that That's something I've enjoyed a lot of. Have you um, played any of the variants of, of Call of Cthulhu, like the Trail of Cthulhu or Delta Green? I've read the Delta Green, but not actually played them. Um, it's a lovely concept, um, and I have to be honest. I've the um, the Osprey book of the Cthulhu Wars, which is uh, crying out to be integrated into Delta Green. Um, although I do have a soft spot for Cthulhu in ancient Rome, having picked up the uh, the Osprey book on that, um, and I can see we get in building up a small war band for um, broken legions and. It may then end up going across to role playing as well. I've got, I've got a soft spot for the, the sort of the small skirmish game where you're sort of almost a role playing game and almost a war game. It's that hybrid. Have Have you played the um, <laughs> Savage World uh, Octoon Cthulhu? No. Um, again, I mean, there's been an awful lot of Cthulhu in World War Two. Um, I actually played. <laughs> yes, I'm sad. I actually played a scenario um, set in 1940, back in the mid-'80s, um, where the, the players were part of the local home guard. 
So you didn't have super powerful characters. They were ordinary people. And suddenly they've come across some obviously Nazi plot. And it just went from there. Highly amusing to watch the players suddenly realise they've been sucked into a Call of Cthulhu scenario. <laughs> yeah, I think as players, we, we may not know exactly what to expect, but... Uh... But when we hear that ominous music, uh, knowing that Cthulhu is, is around the, the corner, it definitely changes our expectations uh, of what's well, going to happen. Frank Frey, said, Frank Frey said a wonderful one. He had um, a Twilight 2000 group have got back to the United States and they've, they've come ashore. They find a dead body and painted on the wall is a certain chant from Call of Cthulhu. Nice. That was it. The planes were back on the submarine and sailing <laughs> elsewhere immediately. We the what's been nice about we played the um, the gumshoe version of Cthulhu Trail of Cthulhu on pulp mode, yeah. and we played on normal mode. The 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 guy running it wasn't. He said later he wasn't doing the insanity rules right. But moving over to Delta Green, it's definitely a, a more deadly system. It's it's been enjoyable. Uh, but we've been surviving not it, mainly out of luck and, and happenstantially making the right decision for reasons that are kind of, you know, like, for instance, we got lucky in that there was a person that we found. It's like, hey, we need to kill him. So everybody opened fire. Two people had low to hits. One person had a 90 percent. Another person had a 70 percent. We all missed. We fired another volley, completely missed the guy. And then one of the players said, no, wait a minute. We need, we can't kill him. That's going to cause the bad thing to happen. And so we tackled him. And so we never hit him once. We shot two volleys, and by sheer luck, we never ever hit him. It's like, it's like, but it wasn't because we were super. It's just because we were, you know, that bad or we had that bad of luck to actually, to actually make it out. And that's what's, I think, kind of fun where you, if you can make it out without characters being super powered, you're just, more normal people. Yeah. So yeah, the uh, and I've not had a chance to play much of the uh, the World War II, but you're right. There is quite a a large number of games kind of centering on World War II and Cthulhu. There, there are. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, you're getting a fair bit now. It's almost like a pulp version of it. I've got to be on that. Doesn't particularly appeal to me. Uh, I like the grittiness of Call of Duty. Yeah. And I, th I think setting it in World War II can be interesting for sort of the moral choices side of things. I think because you're well steeped in World War II history, I think that setting probably isn't that exotic to you. But for a lot of people, no, other people... For for me, that would be kind of an exotic setting. <laughs> you know, yeah. have have people in bombed out Paris, you know, trying to find this lost painting because he, you know, they know that the Germans are going to use it to summon whatever. You know, is much more different than anything because I don't. We don't normally play. At least I don't play like a lot of uh, uh, war games or you know, or steep so much into that World War Two, um, you know, uh, point in history. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, in the UK, sort of World War II being within living memory, it, and it, I think it was perpetuated a lot more in the UK than in the US. 
Well, you got bombed uh, severely over and over. That would definitely would, would would burn it into the zeitgeist, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking back what about twenty five years, and there were still parts of um, Sheffield that hadn't been rebuilt. Uh, when I used to go down to Birmingham for meetings, uh, the car park we used, frontage of the buildings was still there, but they'd actually been destroyed by German bombs. And yeah. you literally drove through a little gap, and you just had false frontage into a car park. Yeah. So th- there is that, there is that sort of side of things, perhaps. Yeah. Well, then you also have like you know like uh, like people our parents' age who could tell stories of being in bomb shelters, you know, while those bombs are going off. Yep. And, you know, that's, I'm sure <laughs> that's an experience you never ever forget and probably are forever changed by. Yeah, I think, I think that, I mean, add as well into the fact that with being in the cadet force, um, I've met a lot of the veterans. I mean, one of the proudest moments I've had was uh, leading on a bunch of D-Day veterans, um, the 50th anniversary of D-Day into a football stadium um, and sort of marching on all these veterans in full uniform. It was like, wow, that that was quite a big thing in my memory. So so going back to, uh, you talked about leading uh, those veterans in uh, on D-Day. I think, I think one of the things is when I, I ran a scenario in the Aktun Cthulhu online. It was set in Romania. And the nice thing about, I'll say the nice, but what you can do with something like uh, in a historical setting is you can pull up historical figures. Maybe not famous people, but historical figures. And I was able to pull up some Romanian students. And so playing the game, you know, these are real people that end up dying, you know, and, you know, it's kind of a thing where it's like playing historical settings, you can use real people, but these people went through kind of some, sometimes some terrible things. And I think on one hand, you can bring some people in to a way of kind of like maybe honoring them or remembering them. But on the other hand, probably also a line where it can be kind of uh maybe callous or trivial uh, what are your thoughts on like pulling because like yeah what are your thoughts of using historical people that lived in situations that were very difficult and maybe didn't have good endings for me it's a great way to educate people uh, I've always seen role-playing and wargaming um, as very good ways to get into people's minds. Um, and role-playing something like that gives you the opportunity to actually understand to a degree what it was like for them in the way that a really good novel um, but with the benefit that you are understanding why they're having to make the choices. Uh, and then having to live with those consequences. I, I think that's a very, very good way of, edu- of educating people. And I'm, you, I mean, I've had fun in Twilight 2000 because I've looked around at what real people were doing, either before they became famous or what might have happened in an alternative setting. And it does make a nice 
cameo. It can give players a chuckle if they recognize who we're talking about. Right. Um, but I, I like the, the idea of actually sort of the, the role playing the everyday person in a difficult position. Yeah, because I think, you know, and rightly so, there are a lot of, you know, people or soldiers put themselves, you know, knowingly in, in, in harm's way. But likewise, there's a number of civilians who, who have died for freedom and, you know, at an early age who, you know, I don't know that we really kind of think about sometimes that there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of different people all over that have suffered and died for doing great things or just suffered just for for no good reason you know at the hands of other people but it's just uh i think you're right i i think i think we in the u.s are probably more illiterate or um not knowing i don't know what i'm looking for of much of what really was going on in europe during you know world war ii pre-world war ii and um probably any education we get is probably I don't. I don't think even in Europe, or at least in the UK, we even we have got quite that enough of an understanding. Um, it's. I I find it fascinating when you look at certain groups within history how it must feel. And one of the best ways I ever came across it was a series of novels, where the hero is is your dashing cavalry officer in a fantasy setting saves a wizard's life, the wizard becomes his patron, and the wizard sort of, sort of gets rid of the corrupt government. You know, it's certainly a typical fantasy setting. Then you realise that actually not the good guy is wizard. He's the fantasy equivalent of Napoleon, and you're his best general subduing all the freedom-loving people. It's a lovely subverting twist. Yes, and I, I, I would, I, I think there is a lot of mileage in playing, perhaps not German characters. I think that that's a bit of a stereotype, but I think perhaps playing some of the German allies, particularly on the Russian front, and how they are dealing with things, the moral dilemmas it gives them. Yeah, and it's. Have you heard of the the game Night Witches? Yes. I've not played it, but, you know, there are your women uh, pilots, Russian pilots, uh, who I believe were flying, yeah. were they flying bombing missions at night? Yeah. Yeah, with the, the really old biplanes. Um, it, it's, they're, they're a fascinating group. Um, I've sort of re read up on them. Um, and again, I've seen the role-playing game, but it's just like, it's another role-playing game. I don't need another role-playing game I won't play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we really need a large, like, retirement community, maybe a large international retirement community where <laughs> we can just go and I come over to your retirement community and we play games for about a month or two. And then you come over to the U.S. and join our retirement community. <laughs> that would be a fascinating thing to do, wouldn't it? Yes, it would be. So, uh, but yeah, I, I, I hear you. <laughs> Yeah, no. Actually, I mean, I, I'll have to be honest. I do buy games just to read them sometimes, um, because you can always learn something, or, or you can borrow an idea and subtly change it. 
I mean, you could you could take the Night Witches into a fantasy setting, quite even. Oh, right. Yeah, it's, just think it's, of the fun you could have with it there. Yeah, and I think the thing I is, I see the cogs going round. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Is what you're doing is kind of in a lot of ways subverting tropes. Yeah, and I think you're right. And the idea yeah. is that's probably where the fun comes because we're all we're all used to the, the same old tropes of five adventures meet in a bar and then they you know go on to a dungeon. I mean that's pr- pretty standard. Yeah. Well, I've got to be honest, when I write things for role-playing games, I usually put little knowing nods in for people to actually try and spot all the Easter eggs. Um, the article on the Royal Army of Scotland has a, has a little footnote in it where it talks about um, assault a, a over a lot, where a lot of boats are lost and a lot of troops are killed. Um, and it was called Loch Fane for, for the Call of Cthulhu players out there. Ah, and that is okay. the only reference in the entire article to it. It's just this block vein where, you know, there's, there's sort of the, uh, is it the fail, I think it's like the failed assault block vein, it's called. And that is it. If players know the reference, they're killing themselves laughing. Right. 95% of people don't. Yeah, that the, you're right. There is definitely opportunities for mixing and for playing. And I think. I think we're finally to the point where uh, the ability to publish materials becomes easier and the distribution is so easy. Um, it's, it, yeah. We're able to actually really do about anything we want. We're not subject to just waiting for somebody else to do it. We can, we can do it ourselves. It's probably a safe bet it's already been done somewhere. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So you, uh, so I kickstarted the, the, the Twilight 2000 um, uh, that Freelix putting out, and uh, and I I joined. I do I do uh, I am on the Twilight 2000 Facebook group, which absolutely enjoy just a lot of the random uh, articles that people post because it seems like a variety of people who have variety of military experiences uh, putting up odds and ends that are just entertaining and, and illuminating. But uh, so, what is your take? on the new uh, Twilight 2000? Um, it's, been, it's been very much, there's a British saying, uh, it's a Marmite thing. You either love it or hate it. Um, I've, I find it very interesting because when you look at it, nearly all of the comments are on the background. Very few comments are made about the rules, which I find interesting. <laughs> Now, whether that is the fact that people haven't a chance to game it much yet and they've concentrated on the background as, as the accessible way in, or whether the system is, it works for them, I think it's a nice system. I think every rules, every one of the additions has had advantages and disadvantages. I quite like this one. It, it's emphasised the survival rules more, which I think fits the background. The background itself I quite like. I, I mean, my current version of the background of, of version two background was about I think it's about two hundred odd pages. I've got together on it. Um, That's been an awful lot of typing for the years. Yeah, um, it's just pulled all the text from the books, added lots of background myself. Uh, so it's starting from scratch. Um, 
I think the biggest issue they had they fixed, which was the um, the invasion of the UK by the by the um, Soviet airborne, because that logistically that could never have worked, uh, and Freely did seem to take that on and rewrote the UK background. Uh, I still find it strange to find Poland fighting on NATO's side, but that that's more my age than anything else. Um, but the new background, I think, works. I think there are oddities in there, uh, the missions in there. I mean, uh, one of the discussions I've been having online is the fact that there's the half a million US reserves that suddenly seem to vanish. Um, I need to uh, having a video on that at some point. Um, it's, there, there are strange things like taking the aircraft carrier into the Baltic, which is the worst place to put it. I can see why it might have gone there. Um, the problem as gamers is we, is we want logical, rational decisions. And any study of history will see politicians and the military very rarely take rational, logical decisions. Um, so I think I, I like the background. Um, combat system things seem, seem okay. The campaign rules seem okay. Um, I quite like the fact they put a solo chapter in there. The, the track that's sort of dealing with it, sort of the traveling solo, I think that's quite a nice idea. Uh, and I, I need to get around to trying that. Just all that, a bit like Bilbo Baggins. I, I just want to keep doing time, time. Yeah. That's what I need. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, we all do. I, yeah. So I think it's, I, I'm very positive about the new edition, um, which, which led to the fun bit when I, somebody then commented after I had made a positive review of it that. Well, I was bound to say that because my name's it, which led to me going, what? And then actually finding that they actually did put my name in as a playtester, which I, I'm incredibly proud about. Uh, I'm assuming based on the feedback I did from the uh, the alpha and the beta. So can I just say, really, thank you very much. But that was the reason. Yeah, just goes to show how good of, uh, they're really good people over there at Free League, so... Yeah, I've never dealt with them directly, which uh, that was, as I say, that was why I was so surprised when that suddenly appeared. But hey, if yeah. you want to hire me, you know where I am, guys. <laughs> yeah, you already got your credits already, so what's the next next step would be writing assignments, right? Well, I've, I've written plenty, but uh, they were sort of form, formally published. Yeah, well, I mean, but, for uh, the paycheck. That was... That would be nice. I've always written it for just sheer enjoyment. Um, and what I'm gradually doing is updating a lot of my old articles, um, taking out all the, the downloaded photos that I've used over the years, and actually finding um, ones that are Creative Commons licensed for, ideally, um, taking the photos myself. Yeah, it's... Um... Some of them may and freely has been very good about, I think, opening up, you know, the, I think the usage of the, of, I'm not sure if this is technically the year zero engine, but it's not too far off. I'm not sure how it technically falls under what they allow and don't allow, but I think they've been pretty open with people publishing things uh, tied to their other properties. Yeah, they seem to be looking that way with Twilight 2000. I'm I believe they're going to sort of do the full announcement shortly, I think, when the actual physical product ship. Uh, and I've got a couple of articles lined up to publish at that point. 
Yeah. So I looked at the rules. I just mainly glanced through. I mean, the, the books are beautiful. The rules seem to be uh, fairly easy to understand. Um, there doesn't seem to be, um, you know, I didn't read through, a, you know, a huge amount of analysis, but I mean, it just, if you're, it is different than the normal year zero type um, material, but, it, but it's along the same lines. And I, I thought it was pretty accessible. But uh, it's still definitely, um, you know, it's it's uh, still involves uh, a lot of overland travel. I thought they had the uh, encounter system using a, a card deck. Was, yeah, was pretty because you can find. Sorry. Oh no, that you're fine. Yeah, I just I was gonna say I thought that was a, a well implemented idea that you could you could steal and use for other things because it it's sort of like the result could be a, like a 10 or would say a jack it could be a similar type thing across all four suits but based on the suit it's how good or how bad whatever that thing is yeah and obviously cards have got a history in twilight 2000 if you remember back in the previous edition they were used for generating the npc motivations but yeah it's, it's almost a little bit of legacy that's crept in yeah, and I think that's a, you know, I think we don't, there's a lot of opportunity for using cards that we, we just don't, uh, I think the fact is you can use normal playing cards. It seems like most of the times that a card system is implemented, it's almost done with the expectation that you buy special decks of cards. We're here, you still can, I suppose, if you want, they'll probably offer it, but you can just use normal playing cards uh, uh, for those tables. Yeah, I mean, they, they will they will work quite nicely. I mean, I, I'm getting thought to actually expand it, expanding the encounters, um, and basically using two decks of two decks of cards, um, but using sticky labels on one on one set with new encounters on. Oh, that's nice. Um, so, but looking at, I kind of looked at the first scenario um, and looking at the things they have. It's definitely still set up for um, the possibility of. I mean. You're in military vehicles traveling across tracks of land, ambushes. I mean, it's it's still definitely a, a military game. And you know, I was looking at claymores, and I think you know how the area of effect that they implement. I mean, so I, I started to get a little bit like, uh, I'm not sure if I, I can run this well or not. Uh, but I may have just have to give it a try. Yeah, it's it was interesting. Um... I was discussing on another chat where they asked me, with, with all the background I've got with the military, sort of interest in military history as well as sort of the cadet force, how well I could roll their character without that background. And it was, yeah, that is a problem, as well as the flip side, where you get people with no military background trying to role play a special forces trooper. And I think that is one of the problems you will always get with this sort of game. Uh, you need perhaps a little bit of an understanding of tactics, not a huge amount, but more yeah. than Hollywood. Yeah, because I think sense. what happens is you have on one end you have some games that are that are very abstract, like say Fate, but then you have other games that that are more I will say simulationists, uh, like uh, Phoenix Command. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not saying that this is definitely yeah. Phoenix Command, but you're right. There is, I think, with with uh, with this new Twilight 2000, there's still a, a you know you need to understand cover and how to best use cover, and 
the rules may not be overly complex, but you do need to be making good decisions. There are decisions to be made. And, uh, and you're right. It's, it's how do you handle that? There's a lovely line in the book, All Quiet on the Western Front, where the narrator remarks, these new recruits are no good. They can't see cover unless it's six inches high. They can't what? They can't see cover unless it's six inches high. It's a lovely little one-liner. Um, people don't realize how much cover there is. Even if you look at something like the the pavement or the sidewalk, if you prefer to it, that's a, that's a few inches high. That's cover. Right. Um, flat bit of ground isn't flat. You you'd be amazed how much you can you can hide in a in a, what you think is a covers a flat bit of land. Um, and this, ironically, this is one of the things I don't like is is using counters and maps. It makes it too wargamey. I'd much rather the theatre of the mind and let players figure things out based on what you're telling them because. You will see things in real life won't be able to pick up the maps. Well, I think if you're uh, doing more theater than mine, I think that does help more inexperienced people do better. Yeah, and I think careful choosing of characters as well helps. You know, the players need to think who they're playing and what they can do. Um, there was a an article in one of the very old white dwarves when it used to do role play. And it said you'd be very unlucky to and I, I don't quite remember exactly what I'm sure I say I say slightly different things every time. But you'd be very unlucky if you had an expert on ancient siege technology, a survivalist, um somebody who understood uh psychology and various other things in your group. And I also remember looking around my group at the time where we had somebody who was studying physics at degree level, somebody who was at military intelligence. Uh, we had uh, an archaeologist. We had an information retrieval specialist. And I just looked around and went, we're a shadow run group, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> and I think you need, you need to perhaps some, sometimes I know we like to pretend that we role play something completely different, but our our prejudices and our mindsets are there, and we have to sometimes tailor it a little bit. Unless you're a truly good role player. So I guess the, the question I'd ask is: Would you ever think about taking the Twilight Two Thousand rules and just simply flip them a little bit and and turn it into a moral project um, game instead? Um, having actually set up a scenario for Project GB back for second edition, uh, undoubtedly, um, I think the new rules would probably, act with the, particularly with the addition of the empathy, might actually work even better than the second edition rules for that. And I, I think that would be would be a very interesting experiment because you you don't have the super military characters in the moral project unless you've got a Mars team, right? And I think the idea is that you're you're here to rebuild civilization, even though the rules didn't really give you much indication of how to do that. See, I always thought Twilight 2000 was the same. It wasn't about the fighting, it was the rebuilding. 
Well, if and, and see, I've not played it, so I'll 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 betray my ignorance. But I, I think the idea is, if I understood the original, well, I say the original, but with the the um, starting out in Poland, the idea is you either kind of basically try and go back home, or you're trying to make the best of it in Poland. Yeah, I think there was a difference between British and American players that the American players seem to focus on the going home, complete with the obvious going home module. Whereas British players, because I think Britain was, was reachable, there was less of an emphasis on that. It wasn't such a big goal. Um, and going home did help with that in that the British was, were doing it much more slowly and evacuating the heavy equipment. So you had more of a focus on rebuilding. And then when you did get back to Britain, um, you, again, there was, there was very much, yes, there was the military side of having to take over the various towns, but it could be portrayed very much as a war of liberation at that point, similar to the, um, the Western forces in 1944 to 45, pushing across Europe. So I think it depended on your, on your your experiences, your cultural experiences, and also sort of the frame of mind where you went into it. I do find that having reread some of the early modules, they had black elements that I perhaps didn't pick up on as a, as a teenager. Going home could be an absolutely horrific adventure if you looked at what it was doing to Germany to, to get the troops home. And there was an interesting bit of mileage in actually playing German players trying to stop the Americans. Well, that's interesting. It's it's a fascinating scenario to reread. Um, and there's a very good book by Harold Foyle called The Ten Thousand, which has U.S. troops fighting to get out of Germany, um, without World War Three, but um, after a complete breakdown of NATO. Uh, fighting to get, ironically, to to uh, the ports to be evacuated. Uh, it sounds vaguely familiar somehow. Yes. Uh, so I, I'm well worth a look at that one. In office, I do have to admit, I've nicked quite a few ideas of Harold Foyle's books. Well, I think that's uh, also, yes. you know, very feasible. I mean, you know, the you know, obviously, if you're not, you know, naming the moral project itself, I mean, that's all fits in that genre i mean it's it's definitely usable publishable stuff yeah yeah, yeah the, what i i didn't care about this so i know they did a second edition of moral project or the newest edition but i think what i what it kind of disappointed me is that they kind of so like it's like they took skills and they just kept fragmenting them without really providing any sort of value in fragmenting you know the number of skills Skills is probably the hardest thing to get right in a role-playing game. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is always criticised for how it handles them. Uh, they've tried various approaches. Uh, they, they're improving. I, I still don't think it's perfect. Oh, no. Call of Cthulhu, I think, has the problem. It's going, definitely going back a few editions, had a skill for everything, uh, and it didn't really allow for you had an aptitude for one which gave you some benefit in another. Um, Twilight 2002nd edition suffered a bit where skills would be added when perhaps they weren't 
needed sometimes. And it then gave the problem of halfway through a campaign, new sourcebook came out, needed a new skill. Uh, and a lot of games suffer from that. I mean, GURPS is, is classic for that, isn't it? Where you have a skill for everything. Oh, yeah. I, I keep waiting for the tying shoelace skill to turn up. If you, if you don't pass it, you're at a minus one to your marching because your laces aren't quite right. Um, so, yeah, I, I've yet to find a system where the skill base works. Um, I, I've, I've said on more than one occasion that when, you, when someone produces a role-playing game that everybody is happy with, normal games will ever get published. I think to me yeah. is if you have a game where the, uh, the, the thought is that people can f- come from varying backgrounds, and then once they pick uh, skills related to those varying backgrounds, they're penalized because those things never come up, and they've taken away points from, um, from actual useful skills, which is be shooting people. So that's where I think, to me, where the, the fundamental flaw has been is like, what's the value of taking dentistry? You know, but maybe the, the value of taking dentistry would be you also have, like you kind of mentioned before, basic medical knowledge. You're able to use, you know, certain drugs and administer drugs. But but it just seems like most a lot of games, the variety of skills either either puts it up to the GM to work hard to fit architecture in or it penalizes a character uh, to when they should just take it first aid or anything else. You see, dentistry, massive, massively useful skill if used right. How many dentists are going to be around? Oh. So your character can earn a living anywhere. Now that, that, I, now, that I do agree with, and I think that is a potential where, but I don't know that there's been any guidance for those types of things, you know what I mean, within the game, because you're right. If the, if the, if the, um, if this leader of this, of these bandits, they may be very open to, to dealing with you if you can cure the guy's rotten teeth and get them pulled or whatever yeah. it may be. I, I do agree. I do agree, but I'm just saying, but in general, you know, it, it is kind of incumbent on the GM at that point, and which is, I don't think it's terrible, but I mean, but there was really no guidance. It just seemed like it's a proliferation of even more skills where really it's like, you know, there's, there's, I don't know if there's been much value in splitting them up as much as they did. No, I mean, this is the interesting thing, I think, with the Twilight 2000 ones, where they have been absolutely rigid. There are four skills per attribute. Something like, I can't remember exactly how many it is off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, but they're absolutely rigid on that, which seems to work. I'm not sure it divides down enough. Um, I suppose the use of speciality gets around that. Um, it's an interesting take on it. I'll be interested to see how it plays. It seems to work relatively well in the character generation side of things. I've played around a fair bit with that. Um, I think, as ever, it'll suit some people and upset others. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to certain game systems would have, like, say, uh, like, like, let's say, like, a pilot skill. You know, it's it's uh, something like uh, FFG's um, Star Wars or uh, even a lot of these others. It's like everybody can be a pilot. 
you know, everybody's got the ability, which it's the assumption there is that everybody's heroic. Um, and a lot of people kind of balk at that. Like, how can every single person in the universe be able to fly a starship? But if you look at the way the fiction works its way out is most people will never fly a starship. So it doesn't really matter. You know, that piloting skill can also be used for riding horses. Well, if you're playing a spaceship, a game of the future, you, you probably won't be riding horses, but you can still call it a riding skill. I mean, it doesn't really matter because the, when yeah. you go to use a skill, just the genre you're in, and even if you've got a low skill and you can, everybody can fly a, star, a spaceship, you're going to have the guy that's actually got a higher skill in it to be the one doing it, pilot, not you. So in a lot of ways, I think that the mechanics logically aren't uh, there, but I think the way they play out actually work. And I think it fits the genre quite nicely, that one. I mean, Star Wars is heroic. It, it, it fits. The I'll give it a go. I mean, Luke never fires the, uh, the quad blasters before he's on the Falcon shooting down TIE fighters. Right. It works. Uh, I think one of the most interesting skill systems I ever came across, and I think it was brilliant but almost unplayable, was the first edition of Paranoia, if you remember that one. Where you I've had one never piece. played it. Oh, you, yeah, you, you should be terminated for that one, considering the fact <laughs> you're not, not acknowledging the computer's power. That's uh, okay, I got another clone and ready to go. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, but it had a very clever system where you, you had the overall skill and it then subdivided. So you started off with something like shooting, which gave you a level one in every weapon. Your next level, you had, you had to go down to level two. You had to choose, say, uh, lasers. So you'd laser all the lasers at level two, but all the other projectiles were at level one. Your third level, you went down to pistol. So you, your laser pistol was at three, and you ended up with a great big skill tree, which took up half your character sheet, but was brilliant as a concept. I agree but because it doesn't make sense. Well, a person can be great at a at a rifle, but be terrible at a shotgun. Or you know, yeah. likewise, usually people that are good at rifles are also reasonably good at pistols and are also very proficient with shotguns. It's like not everybody's great at with pistols, but generally, once if you're experienced in one, you have experience in the others as well. Yeah, you have some basic understanding at least. And also, it's like why you know I can understand like if you're uh, if you're used to a laser rifle, let's say, I can understand being more difficult to go to a projectile when shooting at long distances because you know the physics are different. But but you flip it around, anybody with a rifle should be a projectile rifle should be able to fire a laser without any issue. It's it's even easier. Yeah, although bear in mind it's not just shooting; it's also things like maintenance. Oh, yeah, but I mean, but as far as when you just say, it's, yeah, but I mean, if you just say, yeah. here's a new rifle, here's a new rifle, it's like, there should be a fair amount of bleed of skills going across. Of course, you know, like, like a musk, like shooting a musket, I think when you go down in technology, your idea of how, how much you need to lead or, you know, adjust for, for yeah. trajectory, I mean, that stuff makes sense. But going up to higher technology, it seems like it, it should, or... If you're good at one, you should be good at most things. If you're good at a short sword, you yeah. should be good at a long sword. Yeah, I mean, there's, there was a very good discussion I saw on um, Lindy Beige's channel where he was talking about the different role-playing games, how they handle weapon skills. 
And he raised a very, very interesting point. If you're being attacked by a weapon where you've got mastery, you've got a high skill level, you will know how he's going to attack you. And I thought that's a very interesting discussion, that one. Yes. So he was actually arguing in some ways, much as he loves the rune quest system, that the D&D fighter levels does have a degree of realism to it. I thought that was quite an interesting discussion. Yeah, and that does make sense. And I think that's where it comes down to, you know, how much we want games to, and I think there's always debate on that. I mean, how much do games simulate our life experiences? And maybe sometimes they may actually do it more realistically than we think, but to us, it just seems wrong. It's like it's the level of detail that you need to have. I love Steve Jackson games, GURPS books. They are fantastic. The level of detail, but they they've overcomplicated it so so much in my eye. Tunnels and trolls went to the other extreme. It was almost abstract. It's finding that nice little balance in the middle that reflects the gamer's perception of reality. Because everybody will see things differently. And that, that's a major factor we've got to consider. How do I see this would occur in real life? Do the rules simulate that? Yeah, and I think, too, is there's also, I think, sometimes they're simulating, we'll say, more real life. And then I think there's also the idea of simulating uh, fiction. So, like, fate does yeah. a great job of emulating high pulp action uh, but it's terrible at everything else <laughs> yeah everybody will have something every system's got advantages and disadvantages but, yeah there isn't a perfect system out there yeah and have you played uh have you played forbidden lands no i haven't unfortunately so if you get a chance so I've I've only ran just a just a quick combat. We're actually going to play Coriolis here, uh, in probably in about a month, which I really would like to do as a a uh, game using the Forbidden Lands. But I would say that they they have kind of dialed in. Free League has kind of dialed in a way that you can make choices in combat that are meaningful, and that you have a short action and a and a long action. And yeah. if you use, if you go first and you use your short action up or you're both your long and short, uh, if you want to parry, that's going to require a short action. So you have to decide how, what you want to spend because you may want, want defense later on. Maybe you don't. And, uh, and I think in a lot of ways uh, they have enough little tidbits in there to both kind of create choice, but not overcomplicate the choices. I like I like that concept. It's you need sim, you need to have it simple and flexible. Um, one of the most interesting things to do is to actually watch people who know how to sort it, and it's so different to what you see on film. <laughs> yeah. um, when was the last time on film you saw someone with a two-handed sword was sword by the blade and hit them with the hilt? Yeah, never. But it's it's a recognised medieval fencing technique. 
or even hold him by the blade and using the uh, the hilt to actually uh, hook around someone's foot and knock them off balance. Yeah, didn't they also grab the blade and kind of almost use it like a pick where they just use it to drive straight into somebody, get a le- bunch of leverage into piercing through armor? Yeah, um, yeah, basically short-sorting, uh, turning it into a spear. And yeah. <laughs> I'm sounding a real geek when I look at this, but basically I ended up proofreading the book, book on the medieval longsword. And it's very interesting watching the evolution of the sword because different swords are used in different ways. Um, as you get later in the period, the blades get narrower and narrower and longer and longer. They're designed to actually pierce gaps in the armour. Prior to that, before you've got plate armour, it's much more about using it as a battering weapon. So if someone says, I use a longsword, my first question is almost, and what period longsword are you using so that I know how you're going to use it? Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, it's, I guess it's not much different than today is that there's like one form of technology that's say offensive, then somebody comes up with something to defend against that. And then there's a then thing, then counter, then there's an offensive weapon that's devised to counter that particular defense. And that it seems like over time, you know, like certain weapons were designed for very specific purposes against certain types of defenses. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the sword, from about 1350, 1400, it's almost useless as a weapon against another knight. You carry it because it's a status symbol. What you're actually using is a mace or something to crush the skull. Yeah. And then, then, then once the, uh, the gun arrived, then that pretty much made arm, that kind of armor obsolete. Yeah, although the French are still using it quite happily in 1815. <laughs> it's all about style. The cuirassiers at Waterloo are still wearing metal breastplates. You know, it's, it's, it's little things like that, that, that in history that are always immune. Um, and I, I, I think as gamers, if we study history, we can often pull in some fascinating little insights that make nice little touches in the game. You know, nobody oh, no. ever thinks in a fantasy setting, what should a castle look like? Because a castle is perfectly designed for when you don't have flying creatures. You don't have magic. Right. As soon as we get there, your castle is dead. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, even with modern castles, I mean, with, you know, as cannons were developed, I'm sure the the, the, the engineering for walls changed, and it just had to keep evolving yeah, to the point where they were probably no longer that effective in general. Walls stopped being effective. Yeah, if you look at the, the Vauban-style style forts, they are the counter to cannons becoming available. Artillery becomes more powerful, and we get into the, the trenches of the First World War. But there is that constant evolution. Um, and I don't think in role-playing, particularly in a fantasy setting, we, we ever see any of that, which I think is a real shame. Well, I don't think it, it was implement the in the best way uh but i i was big into the hero system and there's a uh fellow who went by the name killer shrike 
who set up a a combat system where you had like several different types of armor, let's say plate, chain, leather, and then he would have the various weapon types have different effects against a particular armor type. And yeah. so I so I think he made like crushing weapons more effective against plate, you know, slashing weapons better against leather and you know, or and I can't remember what the other one was, but uh, so I, yeah. I don't know if it was a hundred percent logical, but it was kind of neat where your weapon choice actually made a difference. Well, if you remember back in um, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, there was the massive chart for all the modifiers against yes. different armor types. You know, it's it's a bit of Chrome, but does it complicate too much? Then what you've got to start thinking. Right. And that's where you need to figure out either you either need to just I think killer strikes. Right. It just comes down to how easy is it to figure out and at the table, what does it do for your play? Right. Does it does it slow down the game, but add more fun or does it not add enough fun to justify the loss of time? And each group will have their own opinion, unfortunately, with that, which is always complicated. Optional rules are always good for that. Well, the um, problem also that is people say, well, okay, I carry one of everything. Yeah. I've, I've always got a plan to do it. I keep meaning to do it. I need to pick up an old golf bag and get two people dressed up in armor for, for a, uh, a shot where you've got the uh, the knight at the front uh, reaching back and you've got the, the guy his servant behind him, almost Monty Python style with a golf bag with all different swords sticking out of it. Yes. <laughs> Have you played Star Frontiers? I did very briefly. So if you remember, they had like they had a defense against lasers, a defense against electricity, a defense yeah. against uh, projectiles. So they had both suits and they also had uh, like energy fields. And so then you would choose like, okay, well, I think I will have, you know, an, a blade of laser suit, but I'll have, a, you know, another one. It, it, it was kind of insane the way you could mix and match defenses, but then you as a character would want to carry at least one of each kind of weapon to, to be able yeah. to best handle that. Yeah. But actually, there is the historical precedent for it. Let, let's consider somebody in, cha in chain armor. People think, oh, yeah got the chain armor but underneath the chain armor you've got a padded hover yeah which actually will resist sword blows surprisingly well now you've got that so you've got two layers there what are they what are the troops now carrying well you've got multiple weapons you've got you're probably carrying a sword if you're on a on horseback you've probably got your lance to the chatter but you've also probably got a mace and you'll have a dagger for finishing them off Right. So there is actually a really good historical precedent, multiple armors and multiple weapons. Yeah, and I and I, I agree, but I think with, with role players, it can turn to an absurd level because that's where we go. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, the minute discussion on which weapon is better than, than, than uh, any other. Um, ask any modern gamer and there'll be a massive discussion about it. Yeah, I agree. And there's a point where it just all, I think in general, it's pretty much degenerated to, um, 
you're just picking weapons just based off of your uh limitations and it's really more based on flavor so whether you pick a mace or a sword it really doesn't matter you know it's just whether it's a medium weapon or a large weapon or whatever however system breaks it down so, of course and- it, it, there's so many complications because take something as basic as the um the warhammer most warhammers have got the flat side that we hit yeah it always bugs me as well you always see warhammers almost like the, the cartoon thor's hammer when actually they look more like a claw hammer Right. Um, but you have the flat side for, for impact, but if you then turn it around, you've got a spike. So you've actually got two weapons in one effect. Um, and I think when when we game, it's easy to abstract, abstract that in. But like I said, different players, different levels of detail. That is one of the things that Free League uses, is if you have a weapon with a hook, you can um, spend one of your actions to try and unbalance your opponent. Yeah, but like I say, it's it's much broader. You can do it with a sword, right? You know, and do you, you know how far do you take it? Because you then get a sword that doesn't have um, a point, so you can't use it for stabbing. It hasn't got too good cross guard, so you can't parry with with it. Where where do you draw the line? That 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 that's always the big discussion. Yeah, and obviously D and D came from a, a very I don't want to say I'll say I'll go ahead and say it. It's a pretty simple, I think. Uh, uh, um, war game that it, it generate from you know chainmail, so it really wasn't intended to ever I think simulate any sort of interesting combat. But I think that's probably where I find most D and D combat to, even though maybe kind of exciting at sometimes, but it's generally the way it's done is fairly uninteresting. Yeah, you sort of stand toe to toe and hit each other basically. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which uh, you know, it's it. You know, I who am I to criticize the financial success of of Dungeons and Dragons? It's they don't need me to to coach them of of their problems yeah. because they're they're making a lot of money. So yeah, but for um, people without an in depth knowledge of how to actually sword fight, it works. Well, yeah, I don't. I'm just saying is it's just an inter- I I think just rolling d20s and especially based on the probability curve it just and with very little true choice it's just whether you're going to attack or move or attack and i mean there's very little options you know to, to to implement during combat i just think a few simple choices would help but but they're probably never going to do that so so well, yeah, they've, well they've, they've tried haven't they with all the maneuvers and feats and everything over the years yeah i think the problem is is why is it to me, it's what I liked about the free league system is it doesn't require a feat. You just have these options. You yeah. want to try and balance somebody. Are you wanting to, uh, there's like several, I can't remember all the different ones, but it's just like everybody has an option to do that. Now, some people may have feats that actually may make them better at it. Um, but that doesn't mean, but everybody has the option to, to, to do those different things. Yeah. But, but it may slow down the game too. But I, I think D and D combat, can by its nature be pretty slow, especially at higher levels. So they're probably not wanting to lengthen that any more than they have to. So I don't know. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Because as you say, particularly at higher levels, that's probably one of the reasons I like the lower level games. <laughs> Me <they> too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'd much rather play uh, like 
second or third level characters uh i find that much more interesting than than playing uh high level characters so I think it's I, I I remarked on this before on the podcast, but I think it has a lot to do with the media that we consumed when we were younger. Quite, quite probably, actually. Yeah, I'm more comfortable with Elric style or or uh, Conan, but you know, kids these days they grew up with He Man and all sorts of you know wild uh, you know types of settings and and characters. Yeah, but I'm I'm like you. I just prefer. The ability to be heroic, but the world still being pretty dangerous. Yeah, I think it depends on the game you're playing. I think I think that because I, I think we forget that sometimes what works perfectly in one game won't work in a, in the same game, but in a different setting. Right. right. And they do scratch a different itch. And you know, sometimes it's fun to have a guy that you know runs around killing giants and dragons. And there's probably other times you just but. I think my flavor is I want a, a giant to always be scary. A 10-foot guy with an axe, you always want to think twice, no matter who you are, whether you want to engage in combat. Yeah, no matter what level you are, if you yeah. find an axe somebody 10 foot tall, it's going to hurt. <laughs> there will be blood. So, Well, anyway, James, I think we're hitting the, the time-space continuum. Uh, we'll, we'll have to uh, continue our conversation, I think, uh, in, in the future. Well, it's it's been absolutely fascinating. It's been it's, it's been quite interesting as well, in the sense that it made me think about a few things. Yeah, I'll tell you what the the whole byline is. You know, discussions with interesting people. So, I it, and you asked me. Yes, exactly. Well, everybody else was busy. <laughs> oh, that's more like it. <laughs> well, actually, anybody with a British accent to American ears raises the respectability of a podcast up a couple notches so yeah just tend to make us villains as well though yeah that's true too but uh but no i've been i've been wanting to have you on for quite a while you um you reviewed a product of mine i don't know if you made the association which, uh, which one was that ah so you don't have the association no I <laughs> the the doomsday soldier oh yes that we <laughs> Yeah, I apologize for what I said to you then. No, no, what you ever said was right. You're the perfect teacher. You said some nice things and you said, but you know this. And I'm like, yeah, he's right. And he said this, like, yeah, you're right. So I mean, there was nothing, there was nothing, uh, it, no, it was a perfect review. So uh, well, I always try and be fair because I know when people have sort of reviewed some of the things that I've said, it's like, well, that's a bit. Unfair. I've always tried to pick up where there were positives, and I did like a lot of your ideas. As I think I said in the review, it's it's one rewrite of being really good. Yeah, the intent was at the time was to take the travel rules and just make a simple moral project game out of it. And um, I really need to go through some more edits and make some changes. I just got two thirds of the way through it, and um, there's another book supposed to come out, and I I think I just I. I think the rules I just started to, I do enjoy playing traveler, but writing a lot of that. I don't, I guess I, I, I start coming up against a wall. I don't know what it is. I just, I need to find somebody to do the third book or write it is I guess what I'm coming down to, but yes. What, what are you looking for in the third book? I'm assuming the equipment and stuff is going yeah, to be. Heavy. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like, they're, the reason I wasn't too emphasizing the the uh equipment as much is because so many people have already put out works with modern arms and it's very yeah. modular 
now what should have happened are the creatures. And so, and I, the thought would be is for each creature to do like three versions of it. So like take a bear, this is a normal bear. This is a bear with some modifications, maybe just narratively. And then here's a more gonzo bear. <laughs> and then do that with different animals so that they would be natural to the environment. But you could choose which level of craziness you want. So if you just want a regular bear, you got a bear. But if you want a bear that's maybe has some, some alterations, you want to say with some creative licensing with radiation, or if you want to turn it into like a Thunder the Barbarian crazy, you could do that too. But that was my thought. I just never executed that portion. You know, I, I am having flashbacks to the uh, first edition Morrow project where you had the V100 with the mini moose uh, headbutting is at one end and the maxi moose at the other side of it yeah. glaring down. To it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if you remember that cartoon. No, I'll, I'll have to look at, look at it again. The, as soon as you um, see it, exactly what i mean the main reason i did it is i've been trying to get into uh doing layout design so that was also a means to have a product that i could practice out layout skills yeah but uh, i need to do an update uh to that uh it's still on my well if you, if you want a hand with that in any way please let me know actually uh i think we need to talk about uh maybe i'll be on vacation this week but uh yeah i'm i'm gonna look I guess we're still on the podcast, but I'm I'm gonna look for doing layout for other people's projects because I'd much rather be doing layout than writing. It's a lot of work writing, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, in fact, I got a project that I went through that I tried to get other people to write and it didn't really work out. So I end up wrote most of it, which it turned out fine, but it's just it's it's excruciating. Just remember we're usually our own harshest critics. Well, what I've learned is, uh, so I'm an okay, just on my own, I'm, I'm an okay writer. By an okay writer, I mean, it, I do okay. I mean, there's nothing glaringly bad or great about my writing. Um, but I bought the, it's called Pro Writing Aid. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I've heard of so that. So you put it in there, it just does analysis of your writing. So I think by going through that, it's improved my writing by helping my readability and clearing up some words. There's a lot of tools it has. So I think I am becoming better just from having the right tools because it's, it's not always easy. I see. I go on a different approach. I deliberately break the rules. Well, I'm going to say, James, I don't know you that well, but I'm going to say that I think if you're already a good writer, you can do that. If you're just a mediocre writer, you probably should. I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> I think sometimes it's not knowing you've broken the rules can help. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I, but the changes I've been making, I think, do make things more clear. And so I think I tend to prattle and shoot things on a page. I think going back and making it more clear, I think, has is, is been, at least I think it's more clear. It may not be more clear. People may just say, you know what, it's just as obtuse as before. But you know, almost I mean, this seems to be a theme we've had all, all evening, which has been the everybody sees things differently. Every group will look at it and take it differently. So trying to make it clear for one group will probably mystify it for another in my eyes. Yeah, and you're probably not aware, uh, you're not on the RPG zine group, are you? 
So there it there's a Facebook page called RPG Zines. You may be interested or maybe not. I don't know. But anyway, there is a zine quest that's done every year. And Ben Lawrence is one of the writers who who's put out a very successful zine, but it's based more on the um who's it that wrote the the Dreamlands? It wasn't Lovecraft, it was another fellow. Um, well, Lovecraft sort of started. I'm sure did a lot of it, didn't he? Yeah, it was another fellow that was adjacent to Lovecraft. But anyway, his writing is very. Uh, ben tries to create that kind of feel, and his writing is very. Um, I don't know how to word it, but it's. I don't want. It's not dense, but I mean, it's. It's definitely. I'm kind of curious to see if I was to put it into that software, how it would review what he did. But it's very good writing for the surreal landscape that he's trying to describe. And it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's very interesting to try and copy somebody's oh, style. I mean, I've um, recently done a few um, short stories. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read Neil Gaiman. I have not, but I know who he is. Yeah, he did some absolutely brilliant um, Norse mythology stories. And I then proceeded to actually try and fill in the gaps because there are massive gaps in Norse mythology. So I've actually written a couple of stories in a very similar style. It, it made me realize how we normally write. And when you're trying to write a certain style, it's very different. Um, so I'm actually going to try experimenting and trying a few other different authors' styles. And mm -hmm. there's a brilliant page if you can find it. Lord of the Rings as written by various writers. And it's hilarious. They're only like a couple of a couple of sort of paragraphs long at the most. But you have the Lord of the Rings as written by George Lucas. Right. That's that You're sounds like the fun. Idea. Oh yeah. It's it's well worth finding. Yeah, if, you, I... if you search search online for uh, Alison Brooks, um she she was uh she did some very, very good alternative fiction. Uh, okay. That's one of them. Um, she did one that I always point out to people when they're complaining that history is not very realistic, called The Falklands War of Ruby, uh, which basically brought the, the Falklands War of 1982 as a novel, and it's somebody reviewing it and pointing out just how stupid everything was. So I, well, I, so I read one of my favorite history books is Paul Johnson's uh, Modern Times. He's a British uh, historian. I'm not sure Paul Johnson. I've not come across him, which is unusual. Oh yeah, so he basically he's uh, so I believe he's he's Catholic, and he's, there's definitely I don't want to say he's trying to prove a Catholic thing, but he definitely is looking at from basically uh, Einstein's theory of relativity to the 80s and kind of looking at through the lens of how the ideas, certain ideas play themselves out and kind of looking at that way. So the idea of relativity, how that concept in a sense was played in different other philosophical spheres and, you know, you know, whether it be, um, you know, people like also like Freud and then also with the, uh, you know, even with the Russians and with Marx and kind of seeing how those ideas played out. But um, but when I my I used to think before reading that that history was people making really good decisions and those decisions working. And after <laughs> reading his book, I'm convinced that 
it's just people making bad decisions and the least bad decision wins out. And like Lenin yep. took Russia, I think it was with what, like, like with like, it was only like, they stormed the capital, like 20 people or, or maybe it was a hundred people, but he like captured an entire country with less than a hundred people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, oh, he's, <laughs> it's like, history is brilliant with things like that. The East India Company basically conquers India to stop people stealing from its warehouses. <laughs> you sort of take over the next warehouse. Then you have to keep, and it keeps spreading until eventually you go, oh, we've conquered India. <laughs> now what do we do? I guess we're the villains now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People, don't, people you know, can make what seem perfectly sensible decisions at the time. Uh, Tip Custer in the Battle of Little Bighorn. That tactic has worked for him in every battle after that date. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't that day. But it, if it had worked, it wouldn't have been remarkable. No, you're right. In fact, I think even Malcolm Gladwell talks about how we look back on things with already its history, and we see with utter clarity but we realize that people living in the moment, it is not clear. Their amount of information they have to yep. work on is very limited, and they have to make decisions a lot of times fairly quickly. And uh, it's, it doesn't always play out like people think it will. Yeah, and we, we have a false perception of history. The, the classic example is the Wars of the Roses in British history. If you were alive at the time, you would barely have noticed the wars because they're spread over about 30 years and they're just little revolts. Well, but I think if I, I, I could be wrong, but my understanding, which is probably very flawed with European wars, is they were kind of, if I understand correct, a lot of times they were just gentlemen affairs. I'll bring my army over here. We'll meet your army over here. We'll fire a few rounds. Somebody will, you know, we'll, we'll say, well, we're done. And then, then they'll they'll march out back home. Or is that how sometimes these things worked? The problem is, up until modern times, you had to basically agree to fight a battle because armies could outmaneuver each other. Um, and you would love the uh, the Swiss Civil War, which I think was somewhere between 1850, 1870, I forget exactly when, when the two sides would turn up at the battlefield and try not to kill each other. <laughs> they would actually fire over each other's heads to try and scare each other off. That was a civil, now civil war. In, now put that into a role-playing game and get someone to believe it. <laughs> it sounds like, yeah, we, we're having a war. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if it's true. If I recall correctly, I'm going to qualify all this, but I heard a story that, like, C.S. Lewis or somebody was in World War I in a trench, and he said to the commanding officer, hey, I think we're close enough we could throw grenades at the enemy's trench. And the guy says, no. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to start that. It's like, leave it alone. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think... That, huh? I, d I don't know if it was C.S. Lewis, but I've come across that loads of times. There was a... a Great example of it in the TV series Anzacs about the Australians in the First World War in the trenches. And you have the new officer arrives. He's 
right, fire at the, uh, at the enemy. Pardon, sir? Fire at him. And he has to basically force them to fire the, uh, the trench mortar. They fire it, and of course the Germans start firing back. Next thing he knows, this brand new lieutenant has been chewed out by the company commander group. Which idiot ordered you to fire? <laughs> by doing that, they've now fired. With both sides have lost sleep. Now neither side's going to be happy. And they actually <laughs> shout an apology across. <laughs> We're sorry. <laughs> new officer. Uh. You, you find that, you know, and, the, and this, I think that's actually what they say. But yeah. that does happen all through history. Yeah, the American Civil War it was notorious for the two pickets to actually exchange what they were missing on the other side, tobacco or whatever, and they would trade. Oh, right. Yeah, that was, yeah, the idea of a civil war is such a, it's such an incomprehensible thing. I just, I, I still have a hard time wrapping my mind what it would emotionally be like. It's, it's a very clever war. It's a lovely example in many ways of how you can change perceptions with it. Because Lincoln changes his war aims, holding the Union together, freeing the slaves, and nobody ever seems to note. Oh, nobody seems to know what now? No, even at the time. Oh. Lincoln has completely changed the war aim. Without, yeah. Almost without telling it. Yeah, it's it, that's a whole that whole gauge because now we're getting to a, a, a different topic, but that, that's kind of very interesting. And in that, and what he did, in fact, if I recall, he was given the speech, but and there's somebody, a person that was actually the big person everybody came to hear. And so I think we went to go photograph, and his speech was started and ended before the guy was even ready to take a picture. And normally, those things would go on for long periods of time. It's, it's one of those ones, again, if you wrote it as a novel, no one would actually would, would, would believe it. Yeah. Yeah, or he gets assassinated by a guy just walking to the theater. Yeah. Here's a lovely bit of trivia I found out today. It was looking at sort of what's going on across the world at the same time, and it involved things. And it points out that the samurai were abolished um, in about 1870s, 1880s. The fax machine was invented in about the 1840s. So it is entirely feasible for a samurai to send a fax to Lincoln warning him he's going to be assassinated. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that is I absolutely... I just love that. Yeah, you're right. You put that into that a game, nobody's going to be like, what? Well... Yeah, I mean, it's something like steampunk, but, oh, you could have fun if you play around. Yep, I agree. Well, I better get going, uh, James. Uh, it's yeah. It's been great. Thanks again for joining me. I really do appreciate it. You're, you're welcome. I just don't envy you the process of editing it down and trying to find five minutes for you and talking. I'm going to leave that up to the uh, listeners to fast forward parts they don't want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a lot of fast forwarding. <laughs> Thanks for you're listening all- to me waffle. Hey. Rubbish. Thanks. <laughs>